Good morning, first service. Well, we're starting off a new series called Greatest of All Time, so why not have the greatest preacher of all time? Amen? That was totally sarcastic. I am not even close, but that's all right. So... Uh, as we look at this series, we're going to be diving into the book of Hebrews. So that's where we're going to be all this morning. You want to turn there, go ahead and do so. It's about eight-tenths of the way back to your Bible there. For you younger people that know how to measure eight-tenths, ask your mom or dad next to you. Let's go ahead and pray this morning. So bow with me. Holy Father God, as we come this time with the message, we ask that you be with the Word. May it be yours and not mine. God, may we grow from it. May we learn from it. May we take it out in our neighborhood and our communities God, we're so thankful to serve a God that is so powerful. We're thankful for your son. Pray this all in his name. Amen. So we have titled this series, The Goat, or Greatest of All Time. So when you think of greatest of all time, what comes to your mind? And maybe it's some of these people right here I'm going to throw on the screen real quick. To get us in the Olympic spirit, maybe it's Jesse Owens, one of the greatest track and field runners of all time. Four gold medals in the German Olympics back in the 30s. Maybe it's MJ. Who's my Chicago Bull fans in here? Yeah. All right. You keep that LeBron stuff out of here. We don't want to talk about that, all right? <laughs> Greatest of all time, all right? Next also is we got Babe Ruth. Whoa, whoa, we went ahead. Babe Ruth, go back. There you are. There's the babe. 714 home runs. Greatest baseball player probably of all time. You can maybe argue Hank Aaron. Tennis fans in here? Serena Williams, any tennis fans? 23 Grand Slam championships. 23. Somebody you want to meet in the ring? Muhammad Ali, one of the greatest boxers of all time. And then lastly, uh, this one this pains me to say. I mean, <laughs> pains me. But since the retirement has been announced... I guess we should probably start talking about greatest football player of all time. And we could maybe argue Joe Montana, but you got to give the guy his due. Seven Super Bowl wins, Tom Brady. And I think I threw up my mouth. Okay, all right. <laughs> but when we talk about greatest of all time, you want the greatest of all time player because hopefully you get the greatest of all time team. And when you look at greatest of all time teams, they built around players I can't go anywhere besides the 95-96 Chicago Bulls. Now you can throw up my dynasty team. So what, where are they at? Where are they at? Where's my Bulls picture? Oh, no. No, go to the next one. There it is. So you, got, you got Pittman, you got Rodman, you got MJ. Man, one of the greatest teams of all time. Not here yet. You could argue some of the Yankees from the 30s went in four, four World Series in a row, but no one remembers that, so no one cares. All right. Or maybe some of you in here are like, Chase, the 85 Bears. <laughs> Church, I gave you the Bulls. Take it, all right? <sighs> Greatest of all time. Maybe that's what we think of. But as we dive into this next nine-week, two-part series, which is going through the greatest of all time and then three weeks finishing out with MVP, we're going to walk through the book of Hebrews. And I get to start this morning. So as we, we unpack a book of Scripture, I like to give some background on what that book is about, or letter in this case. So the text of Hebrews, if you're already there, first thing we got to know is this. I cannot tell you who wrote it. This is the one book of Scripture that we do not know who the author is for sure. And what I mean by that is, we know that God is the author of the entire Scriptures, but what human hand touched the pen? 
I have no idea. Some have argued for Apollos and Silas and Luke, Timothy, Philip. Some have argued for Paul. Some have argued for Priscilla. We just don't know who. If you want to know my educated opinion, ask me after if that even interests you. So we don't know who wrote it personally. So let's talk about who it's written to. Well, I can't give you a definitive answer on that either. My best guess, my best guess by how it's written and the literature in it is probably Jewish converts, their first or second generation, who were considering returning to the ways of Judaism in the first century. What I do know is that this letter is written probably 64, 65, 66 A.D. I know it's before the fall of Jerusalem in 70 A.D., and we talk about persecution. Most likely Nero is on the throne at Rome at that time. And all right, so half of you that fell back asleep, come back and wake up with me. We're going to get to some important stuff now. But this is a tough book. In fact, I would say this. It is the toughest piece of New Testament literature we have. Toughest. It's got plenty of theology in it, Old Testament references. And it's hard to dive into if you don't know some Jewish tradition to it as well. And so for this morning, I'm talking about the greatest of all time and the fact that we have the greatest of all time Savior at the same time unpacking Hebrews 1 and 2. Thank you, Jason, for that. All right, here we go. So the best way to start off, Hebrews chapter 1, starting in verse 1 through 3. So this is from the ESV. Here we go. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Verse 3, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by his word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now, there's already a lot in there, so we're going to break it down. This will be important to remember through our entire series. So as we go back the next nine weeks, thinking back to how we unpacked verses 1 and 3 of chapter 1 is going to be important to this. So verse 1 said this, Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by prophets. So when we think about this, the first thing it's saying is, hey, many times, referring back to the Old Testament, knowing that God spoke, and he spoke in many ways. So when you unpack the Old Testament, for those you might not be new to church, that's like the first little bit over half of the Bible. When you start looking at that, you see a lot of different ways God spoke to people. For example, when we unpack Genesis, we teach it to kids. It's pretty simplistic. Hey, day one, God created this. And you ask a kid when they get home, what'd you learn? Well, God created the world. Man, that's pretty easy. And then as we start diving in, we get some narrative and some narrative story. And for us logical people, it makes a lot of sense. Then all of a sudden, it makes a left turn. I guess there's other people in the world that God made that aren't logical, like myself. Who are my artsy people in the room? Anybody? Yeah, like three of you. All right. And then all of a sudden, we have... The Psalms and the Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and these emotional books of the Old Testament that pull emotion that I don't understand half the time. So what this is saying in Hebrews 1 verse 1 is it's telling the audience, hey, 
God has spoke before and in many ways and in many times. This brings us to verse 2. But in the last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. So let's start with that first phrase, but in these last days. The first thing that we need to know from that is this. Guys, every first century Christian thought they were living in the last days. I seriously believe Paul thought that Jesus was going to return before his lifetime was over. And that still rings true today. We are living in these last days. And you might be like, um, Chase, we know that. Have you seen Facebook lately? <laughs> Calm down. All right, calm down. We have been in this time frame for a long time. And the reason it's the last days is because all that's left is the return of Christ and the glorification of all of us. Amen? So that's what that means. And then it says he spoke by his son. By his son. The message comes from the son. What this also means is there's no more prophets we're going to have. There's no more, hey, buy this ointment from me and you're going to be saved. All right? There's none of that. There's no, hey, I have the knowledge of, I have the word of God has come to me. It is here. We have it. Now we're waiting on the return of the Son because that is who God spoke through for the New Testament, the Gospels. So that's what verse 2 stands for. Verse 3, describing the Son. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the, by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So what we have is this. We know that whoever's writing this is telling the audience, hey, God has spoke before in many times, many ways. Then now, he's now spoken through his son. Hope you didn't miss that. Because the reason he spoke through his son is his son is now making purification for sins and he is sat down at the right hand of the majesty of God. Church, in order to have the goat of anything, we have to have a competition or an adversary. We don't have the greatest of anything without an adversary. Let me put it this way, because everybody's going to understand this in this room. Everyone in this room knows that I'm a diehard Green Bay Packers fan. All right, one or two of you, all right? And I tell you, after I wallowed through my grief of our horrible special teams for two weeks... I rest on this. Man, I guess we would not be NFC North champions if we didn't have the Bears. That's what I rest on. Because you can't have the greatest of something if there's no adversary. You can't have the greatest if there's no competition. And verse 3 is saying, after making purifications for sins. So we have the problem. And so now we need something. Sin is the real problem. We don't have the greatest of Savior of all time without sin. Now let me stop there for a second, and let's talk about sin. It's an uncomfortable topic. We don't like talking about it in church much. What is sin? Sin is anything that we elevate over the worship of God that's unholy or unrighteous. Well, that was a lot of churchy words. What is sin? Sin is doing things that is not above reproach, meaning that they are not of God. And we choose, willfully choose to do them if we're believers. 
Now, in order to unpack Jesus is the greatest of all time Savior, I got to skip ahead to chapter 2 of Hebrews. So we're going to go to Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 through 10 to get to the main meat of this message. And you might be like, whoa, we're skipping so many verses of chapter 1. Don't worry, here's my synopsis. Jesus is awesome, he's better than the angels. Let's move. All right. So, Hebrews 2, 5 through 10, here's what it says. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. Verse 6, it has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him. Verse 7, you made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with the glory and honor because the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Verse 10, for it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom, all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Pause. That's a lot. The first thing you need to know is when you see something italicized or centered in your scripture, that means it's referring back to something. That's Psalm 8. That's what it's referring back to. And the biggest thing it's referring to in Hebrews chapter 2, the biggest thing this author is referring to is the incarnation of Jesus. But let's unpack that. What does that mean? What that means is Jesus is fully God. He came down to earth, was temporarily lower than the angels on the same plane as man. So when we think of Jesus walking through life, we need to go ahead and remember something. He was fully man, fully deity. That's the incarnation of God, that he was flesh. And that's what he's referring to right here in Hebrews chapter 2 is as the gospel is spoken to the Son, the Son has come, and for what reason? Most important two verses out of that text, in my opinion, verses 9 and 10. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with the glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by grace of God he might taste death for everyone. That's just verse 9, but let's talk about that for a second. Crowned with glory and honor because the suffering of death. Something we get confused a lot in church is we thought Jesus was crowned because of the resurrection. We forget sometimes how important the cross is. He was crowned by the cross through his suffering. Let's talk about the cross for a second. When we think about the cross, we have a pretty muted idea of it. That, okay, you know what, yeah, it was pretty vicious. He was nailed to pieces of wood. Later he died. All right, it's what it is. You don't understand that the Romans perfected a way of humiliating someone in death. That if somebody had been sentenced to crucifixion, what they would do is this. First thing they would do is strip them naked. And they didn't get beaten first or scourged. Then they got nailed to the cross, and you got nailed in such a way as you were hanging there, all your weight was hanging down, you couldn't really breathe. 
And the only way to breathe was by lifting yourself up with your lower extremities that's punctured through a nail and lifting yourself up on that weight to catch a gasp of breath. Why did the Romans do that? Well, simply. They would crucify people on major roads and highways going in and out of cities for a reason. So as people walked in or walked out, they would hear this groaning and they would know you don't mess with the Roman Empire. It was so vicious that Rome said our citizens don't have this sentence of death. These are for other people. That's the cross. And so when it says, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, why? Because God took something that was so humiliating, so lowly, and said, I'm crowning my son with this, and here's why I'm doing it. So don't miss this point. Because the last half of verse 9 says this, but we see him who for a little while is made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with the glory and honor because of suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. This is the dominant thought of why the greatest of all time Savior is on the resume right here. So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. This is the act that puts our Savior as greatest of all time. Oh, and you might say, okay, Chase, he gave up his life for other people. And you might respond with, well, I could do that. I mean, you know, I feel you. So if somebody was coming at Megan, I'd be like, nope, that's not happening. And if I don't think I'm big enough to take you, I have other means to do it. That's fine. And maybe you're like, hey, I could, mom's in here. I could sacrifice my life for my kids. I'll step in line there. But church, do we do that for everyone? Or namely, let me say this. Would you do it for your enemy? Would you do it for someone you just didn't like? Or for some of us in here, would we do it for someone that we honestly, if we were to be honest with ourselves, we might hate a little bit? Because that's what God did. You might be like saying, Chase, God doesn't hate anybody. Correct. But God hates sin. And those that are caught in it are considered enemies of the cross. We are. And that's what he sent his son for. So when we start to think, oh, if we might demean or belittle the cross a little bit, saying, oh, we might give up our life. No, he gave up life for humanity as a whole. Let me draw this image for you. As Jesus was being crucified on the cross, who do you think was there? We know that John was there. We know that his mother was there. But the spectators that were there, do you think those were just like super nice people? Like, oh, we had nothing better to do on a, you know, a Friday afternoon, so we're just going to watch this crucifixion. That's not normal people. People that would have been there have been mocking him, throwing things at him. Some of the most vicious, probably people of humanity at that time, outside the leaders that wanted to see what they want done fulfilled. And he does it anyway. He gives his life. God sends his son, not only for us, but for everyone. And it transcends time and it's so great. But sometimes it's hard for us to understand this. And church, if we don't comprehend the why, we miss the point. 
I think the best way to put it is this way. You know, John Stott writes it this way. Before we can begin to see the cross as something done for us, we have to see it as something done by us. I want you to unpack that for a second. Before we can see the cross as something done for us, which is super easy to do, we teach that every Sunday in church from this stage. That's the gospel message, that Jesus came, died on the tree for us. A lot of worship songs written that way. But we have to see it something done by us. There was no need for that sacrifice if we had not have fallen. And you might be saying, well, Chase, that was Adam and Eve. We talking about that ain't us. Really? You know that sin problem we talked about about five minutes ago? Do I not have that? Do you not have that? Let's talk about sin for a second. Like I said, it's an uncomfortable topic. But I see a huge difference in us as believers sinning and non-Christians sinning. I do. Here's why. As a believer, we make a conscious decision. I fully don't believe that non-believers make conscious decisions about sinning all the time because they don't know another normal. They don't know, they don't know the new normal. They don't know the gospel. I see it as totally different for myself and for you if you call yourself a believer because we make the conscious decision. We know. We have the truth. And what makes Jesus the greatest of all time savior <laughs> is even though I sin, I repent, I come back to him, and he's okay with it. There's a miracle in itself. And we might say, well, yeah, but Chase, the fall and Satan got involved. Can you really blame us? And as we talk about that person, Satan, I know we don't have a really good view of Satan because we don't talk about this much either, but Satan is a personal spiritual being who rebelled against God and leads a spiritual kingdom composed of different demonic powers and schemes. And for us, what we need to know about Satan is this. C.S. Lewis puts it best with this little anecdote about Satan. To the effect that the devil is equally pleased when he is feared and as when he is ignored. Understand what that means. Believers in the room, you don't have to fear that. You serve someone greater. That's the easiest one, but ignored. We as the kingdom of God, as believers, have a mission, and it's to go out and spread the gospel. When we ignore that Satan is a being that's out to get people as well, we make a horrible mistake. So what makes having the greatest of all time Savior an amazing thing. As I mentioned earlier with some fun sports analogies, you look for the greatest of all time in the moment so you can build something amazing. And just maybe you can build a dynasty out of it. Church, I hope you know this, that the gospel is the greatest dynasty that is never overtaken. Because we have the greatest of all time savior who took the sin debt for all of us and wants us to be in union with him. That's the gospel message. That's what we are to do, to take out. What else does this mean to us? Where do we go from here? 
I like how Paul puts it in 2 Timothy. He writes it this way in 2 Timothy chapter 2. The saying is a trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Now, there's a phrase in there I've highlighted. If we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. Let's unpack that first half real quick. If we've died with him, we'll also live with him. The, the first thing you want to know is this. When Jesus was on earth in full human form, he called people to him. You might know them as the apostles. And we have texts like that, like in Matthew 9 and some other texts that where he called certain people. And he said to them, follow me. Follow me. And, a, and they dropped everything they had, their livelihoods, how they made income, and just said, all right, we got it. We're going. We're on this. The follow me is the first half of the ask. And so if you were to talk to me and say, hey, what is our call as believers when Jesus calls us? The first two words is that we're to follow him. The next two words would be then die. And what do I mean by that? Church, we've got to die to ourselves. We have to start dying to ourselves. And that means we've, start, we've got to start putting away these fleshly desires that completely consume our mind, our time, our actions, and all of our effectiveness. So what does that look like for you? I'll start with me because it's a lot easier to judge myself than everybody else in the room. Maybe that means I've got to put away some pride. Maybe that means I've got to put away some envy. Maybe that means I've got to start making some better time choices with my life and how I spend my time because I can be more effective with it. Maybe for myself, that means i got to work on this thing that's up here called a filter and not say everything that comes to my mind. Anybody else struggle with that like me? Anybody? No? Wow, a bunch of liars in here. All right. I know some of you, so all right. But what's that look like for you? What, what does it mean to die to ourselves? Maybe that means we're not going to start, we're, we're going to stop chasing all the money to have more possession, more material, more material. Don't get me wrong. There are some nice things I'd love to have. There are some nice things I already do have. But the point of the gospel is what are we doing? Are we living for the gospel message? Are we living for Christ? Because if we are, we need to start dying to ourselves. And if we truly do that, if you want to throw up that 2 Timothy's text again, that second half said this, if we endure, we will also reign with him. There are going to be people that make comments to you about how you live your faith. There's going to be people that say things behind your back. Oh, that person. That's minimal. There will be some people that they try to come at you because of how you live your faith. But the coolest thing about this, if we endure, we also reign with him. I could preach an hour message on just that phrase alone. Do you understand what that means? If you call yourself a believer in Christ, you get to reign with him. If we're going to unpack scripture a little bit more, at some point we get to help being judge of the angels. I have no idea what that means, but I'm excited to read it in text. Maybe some of the reason we don't have a great gospel outlook is we don't have a good outlook what glory looks like and heaven looks like. 
we all of a sudden think, okay, we live a great life. We follow Jesus. We, we repent. We, we, you know, we give and, you know, we serve. And then when we get to heaven, there's the pearly gates. They open and I go sit down somewhere. And I play a harp for about five hours a day. That's awful. Are you kidding me? I don't know where we got that image of heaven, but it's not in Scripture. What is in Scripture is constant communion with Jesus. Or what I call hanging out with Jesus. Where there's no sadness, there's no grief, there's no loss, there's no brokenheartedness. Man, I'm excited for that. That's something I can sign up for and I want to join in that. I don't want to wear a toga and float on a cloud all day playing a harp. That ain't me. Somebody just had a mental image of me in a toga playing a harp. I love it. I love it. If we endure, we also reign with him. But church... There is an enemy, and there is a weapon at his disposal. We already talked about it. We have to die to ourselves. And church, I believe that all sin is rooted in distrust. All sin is rooted in distrust. And I mean that for us as believers. If we're choosing to sin, we're not trusting what God has for us. We're not trusting what the Father has for us. Let me put it this way. I've heard this once before, and I don't know who I'd give it credit for it. Picture an image of the cross. Jesus is on it, and there's, there's multiple camps of people that are gathered around the cross. And, and let me talk about camp number one. Camp number one is what I call self-righteousness. It's like, hey, we found Jesus. We're there. We're doing the Tim Tebow kneeling, and we're excited to be there. And then we're looking back, and we're saying, hey, get right with God and come over here. Join me because I did the right thing. And then there's a second camp, and you can just see the brokenness and the weeping and the nasty crying that's at the cross, and they're trying to give everything over, but they still hold on, and they're still like, why is this sin affecting me so much? That second camp is that camp that I call a little bit more the victim of like, I have this sin, and I want to get rid of it, but I just, it won't go. And they stay in that state of just wallow. Then there's a third camp that are there and they're kneeling and, and rather than condemning people from the outside saying, hey, get right with God, they look back and, and they're saying, hey, I want to make room for you. I want you to be next to me. I haven't figured it all out either, but I want you to be next to me. So if you call yourself a believer, I'm going to ask you this question first. Which camp do you see yourself in? And it might change all the time. I hope it's not camp one. I hope it's not we're like, hey, I found Jesus, but I believe my calling is to judge people with so many characters on Twitter. I believe my way of spreading the gospel is by shredding things on Facebook. I believe my method of how I take the gospel is to let people know that they are wrong and that they're condemned. 
And what I want to say to you is that if you're finding yourself in that camp more often than not, what you're spewing is not the gospel. Yes, you could be right, but hear me on this. You can be right and completely wrong with how you do it at the same time. Because the gospel message I know is love. The gospel message that I have from this text is love. How I know that is we're talking about the greatest of all time Savior. What did he do? He didn't come down and start beating people and say, come to me. He said, hey, I'm taking on this. I'm going to be crowned through suffering of the cross. And the next thing, maybe you're in the camp that you chase. I'm depressed all the time because I feel like I am not good enough for God. And I find myself at the cross all the time, and it's the same thing over and over and over again. If that's you, I'm going to come to you here in one second, put a pen in it, all right? Camp three. You just had a sermon series preached by Pastor Jason these last three weeks that, man, you know what you should be doing. You know you should be for the community, for other people, for the unreached. I hope that's your heart. If like, hey, I got room next to me. Come on, man. So I don't need to encourage you any more than you already have been. But those are the three camps at the cross. And then there's another one that's not there yet. And for those of you that might be in the room this morning, like, I don't know this thing called church. I don't know this person, Jesus. I don't know the gospel. I don't know half the words this dude just spent off on stage. First, I want to say to you is this. I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you are here. And next thing I want to say to you is this. I'm sorry if somebody in this room or somebody that calls himself a believer has ever hurt you. Because that's not okay. What is okay is this. Is that I want you to know that you are loved. And that this greatest of all time Savior, this Jesus that I'm talking about... Yeah, he, he died for you just like he did me because I wasn't perfect and I'm not perfect still today. I hope you hear that. And if you want to know more about that, come talk to somebody. Talk to one of us on staff here. Talk to somebody like a random neighbor. Hopefully they can help you too. Have that conversation. Now for that second camp, I told you to put a pin in it. I want to make a point out of this day because I believe a lot of us sit here in suffering. And Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 said this, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty of God. I highlighted that last statement for a reason. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty of God. If this book, if this letter is truly written to a Jewish audience that I fully believe it is, that was turning away because they didn't understand the gospel message fully, they kind of lost sight of who Jesus was and how God was teaching them through him and the sacrifice for sins, that, those words he set down would mean so much. What it would mean to that Jewish audience is he's done. It's over. It's done. He's over. Because he sat down at the majesty on high. And so if you're in that second camp, when you guys give that sin over, please understand this. Because of the cross act, it's done. It's over. Let it go. Let it go. 
I hope you find peace with that message this morning. Lastly, we have the greatest Savior of all time who is love and that gives us hope. Close with this question. What camp are you in? Are you shouting at people and demeaning people even though you know who God is? Are you brokenhearted because you don't know what to do with the pain and the suffering? Are you willingly opening up your arms and saying, hey, come here with me? Or maybe you're just out there wondering because I don't know what this thing is called Jesus. That's my question for you this morning. Where are you? Because what I do know is this. We do have the goat savior, greatest of all time, that will never be overtaken. And he wants to be in community with you and me. Make that your prayer this morning. Bow with me. Heavenly Father, as we come to this time, we just thank you for who you are. God, we thank you for sending your son Jesus. As we unpack just, honestly, a simple gospel message of what Hebrews 1 and 2 means. May we understand and may we fully own that, yes, we are in need. And God, no matter where we are at, find us. And may we find you. And may we make ourselves right with you. God, we do not deserve to have what we have. You sent us your son to die on a tree, humiliated, but crowned through suffering. God, we're so thankful. We commit this to him this morning. We pray us all in his name. Amen.